The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to Working, the show about what people do all day. I'm your host, Jordan Weissman. And before I get to telling you about this week's episode, a little bit of housekeeping. If you're a longtime listener to the show, you probably know that we do you know, a season, like eight, ten episodes, however many, and then take a few weeks off to produce the next season. We're not going to do that anymore. We're not going to do breaks between seasons. Working is going to become a weekly show. There's going to be more of it for you to love and enjoy and all sorts of interesting, fascinating careers for you to delve into. However, because making a weekly show would be a lot for one person to handle, there are now going to be two hosts. I am going to be alternating seasons with Slate's brilliant and charming editorial director, Laura Bennett. And her first season is going to be focused on New York's legendary comedy seller. I'm really excited to hear it. I hope you are excited for it. But enough about Laura. As exciting as the news that she's going to be co-hosting this show is, let's talk about me and what I am up to today. We, of course, wrapped up our series of episodes about the world of medieval times, which was a blast. And we've had a few one-off episodes we've kind of wanted to check off our list. And so in the next few weeks, we're going to try to do those. Today, I am talking with Molly Boz. She's a senior associate food editor at Bon Appetit magazine. What does that mean? She is one of the people who writes the recipes and cooks them and tests them and develops them for Bon Appetit. And she stars in these great web videos that the magazine does. They're really cool. They get, you know, tons and tons of viewers. So she's sort of an online food personality and a recipe developer, which to me just sounds like a really, really cool career. And after talking to her, I was further convinced. I hope you enjoy. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's your name and what do you do? I'm Molly Boz, and I am Senior Associate Food Editor at Bon Appetit Magazine. Does that mean you are a test kitchen chef. I've heard this job described a few different ways. What is it? So it's a little bit of everything to answer your question. I work mainly in the test kitchen developing recipes, both for the magazine, which is print magazine. We also have a big digital presence. So a lot of my time is spent working through recipes, cooking through them, and then presenting them to my colleagues for tastings before they get approved. So that's kind of half of the job. Another part of the job is writing articles and content, both for the website and for the magazine. And then another huge component of it is the video that we do, which is we have a pretty large YouTube presence at this point. And so on a weekly basis, we shoot hosted videos in the test kitchen, which are basically recipe tutorials. Yeah, I was so I was just watching a couple of yours. Uh, I was just catching the one where you made a chicken pot pie with turnips. Yeah, the big turnip debate of 2019. This is very controversial. Yeah. So (laughs) the first thing you need to know about Bon Appetit is that it is a highly, highly opinionated place, which is what we love about it. But um, it's not easy to get things by your coworkers. And you kind of have to strike a balance when developing recipes of remaining true to a classic, but also introducing something new to the conversation and not just reiterating something that's been done before. So in the case of the chicken pot pie video, which you watched, Mm -hmm. which is based on a recipe that I developed a month or so ago for basically, which is one of our verticals, I made this, I guess, controversial decision (laughs) to cut the carrots and include turnips instead and it didn't go over well with all my coworkers. So I actually thought your logic was pretty good here because you were like, carrots get mushy if you put them in a pot yeah, pie. No one wants a sad, soggy carrot. No, nobody wants Who that. Who likes cooked, mushy carrots? I also really like turnip flavor. I actually use rutabaga when I'm making like, like chicken soup. I love soup. a rutabaga. I felt like rutabaga was going to be just one step further. A little too sweet, a little too like Just a rude. little yeah. much. Yeah, a little, <laughs> a little extra for you a know, pot like pie. You know, like turnip maybe. Parsnip probably would have gone over better. I that realized that in retrospect. But yeah. I was feeling the turnips that day. But so this the video was fun though because 
And when you say you've got a pretty big YouTube presence, I, I mean, that one had like 600,000 viewers on it. Another one was like a pasta recipe you did, had like a million. I was saying, I mean, these are, it's like kind of millennial food network at this yeah. point. I mean. Definitely. I think the thing about our video program, which is what's so awesome about it, is that we are really encouraged to just be ourselves and we don't overact or act at all in any of the videos and the way that they get edited is in a way where we keep all of the mistakes and the silliness and the mess ups right into the video so you feel like you're in the kitchen just cooking with a friend and not with a professional who's like has a tidy workstation and and like is chopping their vegetables perfectly every time and doesn't make any mistakes no and you give each other shit that was the other thing i noticed okay we give each other shit that's the other part of it that's the (laughs) other part of like the messiness that you see is that they celebrate our interpersonal relationships just as much and that's what makes the video so fun yeah. For the viewers. Is that like sort of you're supposed to sort of like be characters over time? Like you kind of notice the personalities? No, I think not at all. We've been given okay. literally zero direction as far as being a okay. specific someone. It yeah. just so happens that there are a lot of vibrant personalities in the test kitchen <laughs> naturally. And so it lends itself well to all of this sort of debate. That's kind of kitchens in general, though. Like you, when you when you're in a hot space with a lot of people, people their personalities tend to come out totally. And food is so such a internal passionate part of every person in the kitchen that yeah. a lot of fiery debates arise just by nature. Okay, so I want to eventually get into the the nitty-gritty of, of your day-to-day what you're doing, but I want to start just how you even got into this job because I think to a lot of home cooks this is sounds like one of those dream gigs. Writing for Bon Appetit and cooking for Bon Appetit every day is like that would be very cool. But like what's your cooking background? Okay, we'll just would like to acknowledge that it is in fact very cool and it is the dream job. So I feel very <laughs> blessed to have the job that I do. Yeah. How did I get here? I oh, I was not interested in pursuing a career in cooking until my sophomore year of college. Up until that point, I had a strong interest in art history and was headed for a degree in art history, got a degree in art history from Skidmore College. But during my time in college, I went abroad and I studied in Florence and I lived with a little old lady named Graziella who spoke zero English and cooked like a friggin' pro. And because she was widowed and like 75 years old, she had nothing to do all day but go to the market, shop, and then cook elaborate meals for me. And that was the first time that I was kind of like, oh, that's delicious. You know, like I had never, I can't remember a food experience before that moment. Wait, so you like like lucked your way into a surrogate Italian grandma? Yeah. That's, that, that, I mean, you that's, can't make this shit up. Wow. <laughs> So uh, did you did you like were you in the kitchen with her like learning? Was she like showing you how to do stuff or? Yeah. So I was in school at the time. But like, as we all know, study abroad is kind of a joke. And so like yeah. I maybe took a class a day in the late afternoon and then I would come home. And that's like, sounds like a very Italian approach to education. Totally. <laughs> eventually, as we got to know each other better and as I began to learn how to speak Italian, because, of course, she we couldn't really communicate. She started allowing me to come in the kitchen and cook with her. And so she would share her recipes piece for like her tomato sauce, which is literally the simplest thing in the entire world, but somehow was also the most epic thing yeah. I've ever tasted. And it still is to this day. Yeah. It's like the Marcella Hazan rule, right? It's like three ingredients exactly. and it somehow blows your mind. Exactly. And so anyway, that was kind of, that's what ignited a fire in me. And from then on, I knew yeah. I want to do something in food. And so I went home that summer, got a job in a restaurant in my hometown, working in the kitchen, finished out my college degree. I started a supper club in college where I turned my living room into like a pop-up restaurant on the weekends and like made students pay a lot of money to (laughs) come eat there. (laughs) How did that go? Uh, People loved it. And I made money, which is kind of awesome. Don't tell anyone. Um, That means you're doing better than most restaurants. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Like it it didn't take the two-year rule. I was like making money out the gates. No overhead, no regulations. Right. And like I didn't pay my waitress because she was my best friend. A great business model. Yeah, totally. Um, Should bring that back. Um, so you did the supper club thing, and you did kind the of, supper club thing. Yeah, and I was, and at that point, I was like, okay, it's like restaurants for me for a while. I was like so excited and inspired by cooking for my friends, and so that's when I knew I think I want to be a chef. Yeah, and so I graduated college, and I took my first like full time I am a line cook job at a restaurant in Boston called the Beacon Hill Bistro, which was just like a 
fancy-ish French bistro in a hotel and didn't realize till I walked in how little I knew about cooking because I think I thought I was kind of like a chef at this point because yeah. I was like, I had a restaurant. Yeah, you had a separate club. I can run it. No. No. You're not doing how many plates a night were you guys like doing? Um, I think we we're probably doing like 150, 150 to 200 a night. And I walked in. And they kind of were like, so show us what you got. And I was like, but that pan is so hot. Like, I'm not going to touch the handle of that pan. It's been in the oven for like an hour. And they were like, where are your side towels? And I was like, what is a side towel? Oh, like, I don't. Yeah. How was I supposed to know? Yeah. So I burned a lot of hands and learned really quickly. And I really loved the adrenaline that I got from being on the line and how fast I was learning. So I stayed in restaurants for a while, moved to New York, went fine dining, went to Pichelin, where I got my ass kicked. Was it like a progressive every every step of the way in restaurant world was a new kind of ass kicking? Yeah. Different in all of the ways. <laughs> like that first one was like where I got all my like physical burns yeah and then the next one was kind of the emotional burns and then i worked the pasta station there for a while and then i got promoted to fish cook that's which i thought was huge it is huge Um, fish cooks hard yeah it's really hard but i watched a lot and i learned a lot and i learned how to do it so i kind of made my way up there and then i went to all's well which is a gastro pub in brooklyn because i was kind of burnt out on fine dining in any case, made my way through a bunch of different restaurants and ultimately burned out. Okay. And you were just like, I, ne- I need to not be doing 100 and whatever plates. And yeah. Day. And I need to not have my days off be Monday and Tuesday. And I need to not be getting home at one in the morning and sleeping till 11. Because the thing about me is I love my sleep and I get like 10 hours a night. So like nowadays I go to bed at nine and I wake up at seven and that's perfect for me. <laughs> um, it just wasn't suiting my lifestyle anymore. I was just not headed in the right direction, but obviously I still wanted to cook. And so I dabbled a little bit in catering. That didn't really do it for me either because I felt like I wasn't really in touch with like yeah. food that was on the pulse at the time. So then I kind of pivoted towards food styling to blend my art history background with my cooking background because I'm, I was a really visual learner and those things felt like they coincided well. I food styled for a while, and that's when I got hired to food style at Bon Appetit, actually for Epicurious, our sister brand initially. And that was kind of my first foot in the door. And then eventually made it to the... Right. And so I then went in-house full-time as a food stylist for the video department before it was even really a thing as it was just growing. We used to shoot all of the videos, the hands and pans recipe videos for BA and Epi in my apartment. Like it was homespun. And when you say hands and pans for people- Hands and pans are the recipe videos that are shot overhead. So you're just looking down at a single burner with a pan or a cutting board and watching a recipe unfold that way. They're not personality driven. So that's that like was... the, the standard cooking video on the Internet. Yes. Now. Yeah. The, the precursor feed, to any yeah. of this hosted personality driven stuff. Yeah. And um, you're, so you're doing those like in your apartment kind of. Yeah. Co- yeah like, very low tech. Like just, totally. Yeah. Like a camera guy, yeah. not even a sound guy because we weren't using sound. Uh, and had you like a Bunsen ev- burner. Had you ever even like thought about doing media stuff up until then? Or is it, this just kind of where it led you? I don't think I knew where it was going to go. Like, I don't, it was never like, my dream is to work at a magazine. Yeah. But one thing kind of led to the next and I started to realize like, this is a way that I can touch on all of my interests and be really engaged with what's happening now in food and cuisine without being at a restaurant. I'm curious if your colleagues kind of had a similarly like circuitous route. Do people like just go into like, let's say I'm going to go to a test kitchen or do they kind of come through the woodwork of you, restaurants? There and are stuff? like a lot of ways to come through the woodwork. I think most people either get an education in restaurants or yeah. go to cooking school to begin. And that's kind of like the very first step to being a seasoned cook, which can set you up for a job in food media if you want to be on the cooking side of things. I didn't go to cooking school. I don't really believe in cooking school. I think it's a waste of money and time. I think you learn so much faster and get paid to working in a restaurant. But some of my coworkers did go to cooking school and they all have different stories. I think like the food styling angle is one way in. It's like the more visual and treeway into food media and then there's like people who have a background in English and came at it from more of like a writer standpoint or people who worked at other magazines like fashion magazines but then pivoted into food so you can yeah. kind of come at it from a lot of different angles this was just mine so you write the recipes now you are developing and writing them yeah so where does that process begin so 
we have ideas meetings internally at Bon Appetit where everyone gets in a room together and pitches recipe ideas. If we're talking about for the website, there'll be ideas that are pitched about a month or two in advance of when we intend that they will go live on the website. So right now we're pitching ideas for early summer. Everyone gets in a room. We go around the room. Everyone has about 90 seconds and you pitch your best recipe ideas. And then we collate all of those ideas into a document and we look through them all and we decide what does the world need this month or what is the world going to need in May, in June, in July of this year for each of our verticals because we have three. There's Bon Appetit, there's Healthy-ish, which is a subcategory of Bon Appetit, and then there's Basically. And there are very different readers for each of those verticals. And Basically is like the simple recipes. Basically is for the entry-level home cook who doesn't have an enormous kitchen or a big expansive pantry and is just kind of starting out yeah. learning how to cook. So people who are sort of on a maybe diet, people who don't want to be too technical in the kitchen and then actually like the sort of stretch recipes. Yeah, the they're kind of, they're people whose healthy lifestyles inform the way they eat. Okay. And then the Bon Appetit reader, which is kind of somewhere in the middle, who's down for a more intense project-based recipe, but is also not scared of eating just like a big bowl of pasta. So all of those kind of middlemen recipes get published on bonappetit.com. And so after those ideas meetings, we break out and figure out which recipes need to go live on which parts of the website. And then we go into the test kitchen and start developing. But you have to come up with the initial recipe ideas. Like You have to like have your list of things you're going to pitch, right? Everyone pitches, whether or not you are a cook at the magazine or not, you're pitching ideas. Yes. So where do you where are you drawing your ideas from? A lot of it comes from what I'm seeing on Instagram as trending and I like I scroll through so much content every day on my phone. So it's sort of things that I notice as patterns that are coming up again and again and it's like, "Oh, People seem to really be holding on to this idea of this certain dish and I keep it keeps popping up on my feed. Or, and then I went out to a restaurant the other day and I saw a version of it that was like kind of different but sort of similar. And so like that's how the wheels get working. And then you from there are able to hone in on something that feels uniquely yours but inspired by things that you're seeing around you. So are you like just waking up every morning and like pulling up Instagram and like over coffee and unfortunately yes it's like me and it's like turn off alarm open up Instagram yeah that's just that's just shitty is it before you get out of bed yeah (laughs) it's bad see but I I do that with Twitter so I just wake up angry like that's my there you go I wake up hungry yeah It could be a lot worse, see? Totally. So you're scrolling through just con- and like just you're consuming. You're consuming. If I'm not actually eating a bowl of pasta, I'm consuming it on Instagram. It's just the way things work these days. Yeah. And so, and then you're also looking for it in restaurants. So that's the other place. Yeah, definitely out in the world and in places that I'm inspired by, both in travel and then just in restaurants around me. How often do you eat a dish at a restaurant and think, I could do this better? I want to change this. I guess, do you turn off your work brain at all when you're, when no. you're at a restaurant? No. I don't really think of it as a work brain. It's just like the me brain because my work is just what I love to do. So I'm not working. I'm just being me. What's hard for me sometimes about going out to dinner is that I don't like going out to dinner in places where I know that I could execute those dishes myself without having to do any research or look anything up. Like when I can see a menu and know that like I can probably execute any number of those dishes at home. That's not how I want to spend my money and my time because I don't feel like I have much to learn there. That has to be a fairly high bar, though, for you. It is, but you'd be surprised. I mean, there's a lot of cuisine in the world. (laughs) You know, there's a lot of dishes out there and there's so much new technique that is around me. There's so much to discover in new restaurants, but you just have to be kind of careful about where you go. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. 
And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. So you guys decide that you need to do certain recipes for May. They have to go up by then. What, what happens then? So the first thing that I do when I'm assigned a recipe is I start to write. Everyone works differently in the test kitchen. The other food editors don't necessarily operate the way that I do, but I like to visualize the dish in my head, think about all the ingredients that I want to include in it, and then get on my computer and start typing out the recipe as I envision it unfurling process-wise. Interesting. So Chris Morocco, for example, who is a colleague of mine, does the opposite, and he'll go into the kitchen with a piece of blank paper, start cooking, and frantically start scribbling down what he's doing. That works for him. Everyone works differently. But for me, that enables me to really think through the dish start to finish, think about all the potential ways that I could take the dish, both flavor-wise and technique-wise, and then I print out that recipe, I bring it down to the kitchen, I gather my ingredients, and I start to cook through it, and anywhere where I deviate from my own ideas, I make notes. And then I refine that as many times as I need until I feel like this recipe is in great shape. And that's when I call a tasting. And a tasting will include myself, another food editor, just to have a gut check from someone else in the kitchen at the tasting, and then whoever's working on the story. So that would be the story editor, either print or for digital. They'll all come down to the kitchen and we sit at a table and I serve the dish to them, explain to them my process, explain the ingredients. We taste it. We talk about it. If people have suggestions, I take them into consideration. If they're big changes, I'll cook through it again, put it up for another tasting, and we'll do this as many times as we need until everyone thinks like this dish is exactly where it needs to be and we're ready to ship it. So how many times before you get to the tasting are you typically cooking something? It really depends on the recipe. If I'm assigned something that I've made a million times before and I could do it with my eyes closed, maybe once, maybe twice, something that I've never made before and maybe is a baked good so it takes a lot of tweaking that could be three four even five times i don't think i've ever tested something more than five or six before putting it up for tasting that's pretty atypical will you like cook the same thing multiple times just in one afternoon or one day yeah just over and over i like to start earlier so that i can get it done at least once or twice but i don't think i've ever made something six times in one day that's just your palate is totally spent by that time you're like i don't i can't even see this dish anymore (laughs) It's just invisible to me. It doesn't even taste good. So you'll do something five or six times at absolute most, maybe once or twice if if you just nailed it. Well, it's like something you can knock out once or twice. I recently developed a recipe for mushroom carbonara, for example, for basically. And there are recipes that I've developed for other carbonaras. So it follows a similar procedure and list of ingredients, but I'm swapping out mushroom for bacon. So those are smaller tweaks. And I fundamentally know how to cook that dish and how to write that recipe. So it, it comes easier. It's, it sounds like that's something if you were just like coming up with a special for a day at a restaurant, but I can figure this out like quickly. And... There you go. It's the daily special. Mushroom <laughs> carbonara. There you go. For dinner tonight. <laughs> it's easy. Is there like a panel of like senior editors who try the recipe at some point? That core group of people. So yeah. Those people are senior people, senior okay. editors. That core group of people has the final word on the recipe. It doesn't go, you know, it's not open for debate with like 40 people. But what happens from there is that if everyone says, yes, let's do it. We love it. I then give the recipe to a cross tester who will cook through it without any of my notes or anything. I write up the recipe as it should be, but they cook through it and they notate anywhere in the recipe that timing felt a little bit wrong or they didn't totally understand the language I was using or the indicator, like what does the sauce should be smooth actually mean? Like how thick should it be? They ask questions like that and notate the recipe through the eyes of a home cook so that we get a chance to answer any questions that might arise on the part of the reader before it goes live. That's sort of like the equivalent of like a fact checker or copy editor in a way going yeah. through it one last time. We, which we also have, but yeah, yes. But this, I'm just thinking for, yeah, that so it makes it's sense. It's a good analogy. Testing it out. For me, that's like a crucial and one of the most important parts of the process. There are sometimes huge fundamental things that the cross-tester can find in that recipe. Do most cookbooks have cross-testers? It's a tricky thing. I know some cookbook authors who have budgeted in cross-testers and a lot of them who haven't because, as we all know, 
cookbooks are very, very expensive to produce and you kind of have to figure out how you want to allocate your money. And a lot of that, the important things that are really important to allocate your money to are things like the visuals and the photography and the food styling, which are really selling your book. And so oftentimes it just becomes a second priority to get your recipes cross-tested. It also is a matter of time. So for you to cook through all of your recipes in a cookbook and then before you have finished the manuscript to then a lot time for someone else to cook through all hundred or however many recipes are included. That extends the process a lot. So it can go either way. This is interesting to me, though, because this seems like another parallel between news journalism, magazine journalism and and food journalism with that. Like in the magazine world, there are still fact checkers who actually will go through a magazine story and make sure you know they'll call the sources and everything. Totally. And in books, that almost never the case. Where, yeah. Whereas like it seems like the same thing here is it, with Bon Appetit. You've got the cross testers kind of to tell you if something doesn't make sense, whereas in a cookbook that may not exist yeah, at all. Yeah, it is funny because... This thing is temporary and the cookbook is permanent. (laughs) Something's wrong with this picture. Something seems a little bit off. It sounds like so if you're buying Bon Appetit, like you're more likely to have a a double checked recipe in there. Definitely. I don't think people realize that, but that's definitely the case. These are tried and true. That's good for given the way how recipes are now moving or the industry moving because now everyone uses like New York Times cooking app or they go to get a recipe from bonappetit.com. So in a way you're getting higher quality stuff maybe. The higher quality content is the content you're getting digitally ironically. Weirdly. And may or may not be paying for but I forget. Do you have to have a subscription to use these Not yet. Not yet. But perhaps. Maybe stay tuned on that. Who knows. (laughs) So how much of your time is spent in the kitchen? What time do you get to the kitchen every day? I get to the kitchen around 10 a.m. I make myself a cappuccino and then I usually go to my desk for like an hour, write up recipes, do any brainstorming, take meetings if I have to. And then around 1130 noon, I'll come down in the test kitchen and start cooking once I have an appetite. Things get pretty busy around 12 or 1. Yeah, you have to cook hungry. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. There's nothing worse than cooking when you're not hungry. It's like you can't relate to your food at all. You know, <laughs> you don't want to look at it. You don't want to taste it. There's no love in that club. So yeah. I definitely love to cook hungry. So then I'll go down in the test kitchen, test out some recipes. And if I'm feeling great about them, I'll slack all of the those editors that we talked about before and yeah. I'll schedule a tasting and they'll come down and we'll proceed through it. So you'll do multiple recipes at once or just like one at a time? It kind of depends. Sometimes you'll group them together. If you're working on a story where there's wow. multiple recipes within a story, you'll put them up together so that the story editors can kind of see how everything's going to work together because not only are we tasting for flavor, but we're also looking at things visually and thinking about how is this going to look in the magazine as a cohesive story together once it gets shot. So we're looking at the different colors on the plates and yeah. whether ingredients are being used multiple times throughout the the different recipes. So that's another thing that we're mindful of. So you'll make like a little spread sometimes for them. Yeah, yeah, we'll do a spread. I try to put food up around 1.30, 2 o'clock, just yeah. because I know from experience that it's kind of painful to be asked to come down at 4.30 when like you have dinner plans an hour and a half later and have like a feast in front of you. That's just rude. <laughs> that's interesting. So you have to, your work schedule has to be around your editor's stomach. Sort yeah, of. definitely. I think it's a courteous thing thing to do. I, I, that is really courteous. I'm thinking about like, how I blow deadlines constantly. I don't think I'd be capable of that. But yeah, but it is like it's a physical thing. Yeah, that's good of you. Yeah, so, I'm a nice girl. So, so you get your test recipes done by around like at lunchtime, mid-afternoon. Yeah. What do you do after that? Do you go back to cooking stuff? Kind of depends on the day. Um, I might then go back to my desk and kind of make all the changes in the notes that I need to in my recipe. That's a great time to then connect with people and take meetings and do all the stuff that I wasn't able to do while I was in the kitchen, kind of take care of all of those tasks. And then on other days, we spend time shooting video instead of cooking the recipe. So the week really varies day to day. And I think that's something that I actually love about the job is that I just described a typical development day to you, but that's not typical of a day when I'm shooting a video like today, for example, when I shot this burnt cheesecake recipe video that will come out in a couple of weeks. Uh, burnt cheesecake? Uh, uh, you like that? <laughs> I, I, I'm like, I'm I, I think I like that. Yeah, I think you're going to like it. Is that like a kind of like almost a creme brulee top type thing? Or like, is no, there, is that it's a crustless on? cheesecake. It's actually a Basque style cheesecake and you cook it at really high heat. And so the outside gets really burnished and dark and Ooh, crusty and yeah. the inside stays really light and fluffy. Oh, that does sound good. It's 
I mean, it's delicious. Oh, man. This is okay. So how long does it take you to do a video? Like that's a whole day if you're doing one. A recipe video usually takes about two hours. Oh, two we hours. We a lot okay. about two hours per video, but sometimes we'll do two videos in a day back to back. And so that takes up a good, ends up taking up a good chunk of the day. Had you ever imagined yourself as like a TV cook? Were you like a Food Network fan or anything like that? No. You didn't watch it when you were like younger? Like even Iron Chef? I or? have watched it. Yeah, it but is like... really not my cup of tea. No <laughs> offense, Food Network. Um, <laughs> I think that's what I love so much about what we do on our YouTube channel is it feels kind of like the anti-Food Network. I mean, it does. But like I grew up as like, I used to literally watch like Emerald Lagasse when I was like a tween. Like, well, remember, like I didn't really get... I didn't really find a passion for food until I was in college. So I wasn't like yeah. eight years old on the couch watching Ina. Um, I, I watch her now sometimes. You never thought of yourself as like an on-camera food personality at all. This is something. Uh, not until a couple of years ago when things were kind of all starting to pick up in this department. It wasn't until I started working at BA that I really, truly found a love for figuring out how to connect with readers and really, really teach them how to cook. Yeah. That's not something that you get to do in a restaurant. You just get to serve them. And that's a beautiful thing. But you don't get to teach them anything. Well, how long were you in the editing world before you started doing videos? I'm curious. It sort of happened simultaneously. Okay. So they started. Together. Yeah. yeah they you, were both growing same time. Because you were doing the hands videos, like you said. And so and then the hosting thing came up. When right. You were. So this has been part of the job the whole time for you. Basically. Yes. It's just become a larger part of the job yeah. as the, the YouTube audience has grown. And we've gotten such positive feedback on YouTube that now we shoot a lot more regularly than we used to. We used to have one shoot a month and now we shoot almost every day in some capacity or another. Does that change the kinds of recipes you're thinking about and trying to develop now that you that's becoming more of the job? You know, we don't develop recipes for video, but we develop recipes because we know that they are going to be consumed digitally and we know who those people are who are on their phones like what that generation looks like and what they're looking for and those are the same people that are watching the youtube videos so naturally the content sort of finds its way into youtube but we are really specific about which recipes we decide to shoot in video and not all of them make the cut you know we develop like 20 recipes a month digitally and maybe Three or four of those get shot in video. Yeah. Things that we feel like there's either a really important teaching moment within or they're just home runs. Just because, like, you know, people are going to fucking love it. Like, this everyone, thing, right? everyone's going to click on mac and cheese, like, no matter what. Yeah, it doesn't can... matter how stupid the recipe is, they're <laughs> clicking on it. Uh, is that put a lot of pressure on your mac and cheese recipe? Well, I actually just came out with a mac and cheese recipe that people just ate it up. Um, <laughs> it's called adult mac and cheese, and it's basically. My answer to Annie's mac and cheese in a yeah. way to kind of eat Annie's for dinner without eating Annie's for dinner. So you, you can tell yourself you're not doing it. Yeah. So you can just kind of be a little bit of an adult That's, now that <laughs> you are. A tiny bit of one. Just a tiny Enough. Bit. Just enough adult. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, how long did it take you to get used to being on video? Was there like an adjustment period of figuring out how to cook for the camera? Yeah. I was so nervous the first video that I did. I remember it, it was for a brined and pan roasted pork chop. And I remember when the producer reached out and said, hey, Molly, how would you feel about hosting a video? And I was kind of like, oh, oh <laughs> yes, but also holy shit. Yeah. Because I'd never been on camera in that way before. I mean, you're supremely on when you're on camera and you're talking to no one, which is not easy to do. I mean, there's a crew in front of you, but they don't respond when you talk because <laughs> no. they're not allowed to. And so it is a little bit awkward to kind of keep the conversation going and the flow of the video and the energy alive when you're talking at nothing. And that was something that I really had to acclimate to. It's so much easier now. I don't get the jittery nerves that I used to, thankfully. But we're also really lucky to work with the same crew every time that we shoot. And so... At this point, they're just coworkers and they're old friends. And it's kind of like we're all just hanging out in the test kitchen now. Yeah. So I don't feel like there's like this huge, scary camera crew that's all staring at me because even though they are, I know who they are. How many people are on the crew? There's two camera ops, a sound guy, a producer, and then like an assistant producer, a food stylist, an assistant food stylist. So there's like seven or eight people plus me. Wow. And then even more so in some of the 
more produced series that we have like Gourmet Makes or Back to Back Chef where it's a little bit more at stake. It's interesting. So it has that sort of Lo-fi is not quite the right term because it looks produced. Like it doesn't look like, oh, I just slapped this together. It looks informal. It has that informal vibe to like what you're doing. But there are there's a bunch of people on the other side making sure everything goes right. Definitely. And, and you know, it's it not just shot on an iPhone. No, no, it, it doesn't look like I'm not did not mean to imply hey. <laughs> such a thing. What are you saying? So when you are doing these videos now, do you like imagine someone you're talking to? Do you have like how did you figure out how to kind of keep that energy up? I generally try to pretend like I'm talking to the people who aren't responding to me, i.e. the crew. And I do sometimes mention their names and kind of just like speak to them as if they were going to respond, even though I know they, well, sometimes they do, but most times they don't. But the other thing that I always do is usually in the morning, right before I shoot, I ask my husband, what do you need to know about burnt cheesecake? Like, (laughs) what is, what are your dying questions? Yeah. And that question coming kind of out of left field for him is a great way for me to think about how he might be thinking about it and like what conversation to start in the video. Is he also a food guy or is he? No. He's not? No, he's a design guy. He's a design guy. That's useful though because you don't, if he was a food guy, then he'd have like a kind of professional perspective. Yeah, that wouldn't go well. That's not who you're doing these videos for necessarily. Right. He's a home cook. He's a home cook. He's a great one. Uh, Do you split the cooking at home? No. No. I would say it's like, 95-5 95-5 with the 95% <laughs> being me. But that's not, that's by choice. Like he offers to cook probably 50% of the time and I refuse to let him most of those times. Harsh. It's not harsh. I just love to cook. <laughs> and I just know that it's going to be more efficient if I do it. And it's not necessarily going to taste better because he's a great cook and I'll give him that credit. But I love to do it. And even when I come home from work, it's like yeah. that's also my way to relax in a weird way. So I'm like, let me have my moment here. Do you have like a different home style of cooking than when you're like at the office? Or is it just like the same but now relaxing because there's no editor? I think I cook pretty similarly at home. Yeah. You know, it's not like the chef thing where you just want like toast at the end of the day. Well, my guilty pleasure, which I guess isn't necessarily a guilty pleasure, but my the one of the things I enjoy most after a long day of eating and cooking at the office is to eat a bowl of cereal. And that is so exciting to me because What type of cereal? I really like to do a blend of Special K and multigrain Cheerios, and I eat it with almond milk, and I sprinkle it with salt. Really? Yes. The salt? Yeah, just salt, because, you know, everything needs a little bit of seasoning. Interesting. Um, you should try it sometime. I think I will. Cereal is under-seasoned. That is so exciting to me, because sometimes my palate gets really tired yeah. by the end of the day, and if it's been a big day of tastings, like, there's nothing more delicious than cold, crunchy slightly salty bowl of cereal. <laughs> that's fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> that's I, I can see that. That's like comfort food. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Another thing I noticed about the videos is that you're constantly like kind of interacting with the other people cooking in the kitchen, giving each other shit. Like I said, is that also kind of like part of how you like, I guess, is that like a tool you use? It's definitely part of what helps make the video process, the shooting process more comfortable. Just knowing yeah. that at any point, if I need to, I can just turn around and grab Andy and chat yeah. with him and bring him on camera. And everyone's pretty comfortable doing that. Now we all sort of assist one another. But the thing that's so great about being in the kitchen with everyone together, not just in video, but through the development process, is that there are so many people to bounce ideas off of. And I've developed recipes and done this kind of work at home as a freelancer and found myself really trapped in my own head. And I never get trapped at work because there's always someone who knows exactly what I'm thinking about and exactly what I'm talking about and can talk me off a ledge or steer me into a different direction when I'm not happy with where things are going. And that is like an invaluable resource to have. What is like a talk you off the ledge moment in recipe development? You know, when you've made something like four times and it's just like, this is should be so easy. Like, why is it so freaking hard to make these Brussels sprouts taste good? Yeah. I know how to cook Brussels sprouts. Like, I can make... Brussels sprouts. I've done it a million times. Why are these not awesome yet? And it's like, I remember specifically with this one dish, it was for BA.com. It was a roasted Brussels sprouts with this agri-dolce glaze. And I just couldn't get outside of my head and I couldn't figure out what the dish needed, but there was something missing. And Chris Morocco said, what about some scallions? And I just was like, 
of course. Like, <laughs> obviously, this dish needs scallions, but I just couldn't see it. I it, It's writer's block yeah. for recipe development. And when you're at home, you don't have that person to interact with. So the test kitchen and the people there who are all so informed and intelligent in the kitchen are really invaluable tools for each of us yeah. to use. So there's like a little bit of collaboration. Totally. Or, yeah, or a lot Everyone's of collaboration. Everyone's involved. Yeah. Do you ever get competitive with each other? Like, is there a race to come up with the easy mac and cheese? No, because everyone kind of has their territories. So Chris and Andy split up healthy-ish. So they do most of the development and it's understood that they are kind of the parents for that vertical and I do the basically development and some of the BA.com stuff so everyone kind of has their lane yeah. and there's some crossover but it's generally speaking not a competitive environment nothing like working in a restaurant that's for sure it's way more collaborative whereas at restaurants you're all trying to like everyone like tournament just, yeah system. trying to sabotage each other and get to the top <laughs> Like, we don't do that, or at least I don't. I can't speak for everyone else. Did you actually have like people sabotaging each other when you were in in restaurant um, world? You know, you hear those stories. I definitely had some malicious line cooks and people who weren't well wishing. I don't know that anyone ever like burnt my mise en place for me. Yeah, in but... like that kind of way, but. I definitely felt that competitive nature because everyone's underpaid and everyone's trying to make it up the ladder. And at Bon Appetit, it's a very convivial community and it doesn't feel like I'm trying to just like knock people down and like get to the top. <laughs> it's just not like that. We're all just like in it together. The worst is that someone's going to give you shit about the turnips instead of the carrots. Right. Like if that's my biggest problem, it's A-OK. Yeah, that sounds better than a malicious line cook. I like that. Exactly. So I'm plotting with a knife. Um, you mentioned um, Brussels sprouts. And, and that brought to my mind immediately the annual Thanksgiving edition of every single cooking magazine. Ever. Yeah. yeah. I've heard that Thanksgiving is like the worst for cooking magazines. Is that true, first of all? Is Thanksgiving the worst for you guys? Thanksgiving is simultaneously the worst and the best. Thanksgiving happens at Bon Appetit in July. Oh, really? So literally the entire month of July is spent with iteration after iteration of stuffing, mashed potatoes, gravy, turkey. <laughs> and it's I want to eat less City. in July. It is 100 degrees outside, humidity index 1 million. And you're just like, God damn it, I don't want to eat sweet potato casserole again. But you have to. And so that's kind of the irony of Thanksgiving at the magazine. It's also exciting and delicious and a really fun issue to work on. It's definitely hard because people want the classics for Thanksgiving. It's such a nostalgic holiday. It's difficult to challenge ourselves to come up with new ideas again and again and again, things that have been done before, but we can put a new spin on it or take a new angle on. That's the biggest challenge with Thanksgiving because there's only so much wiggle room. You have to have a turkey. You have to have mashed potatoes. No one wants a Thanksgiving spread without stuffing. So those kind of things are always necessarily going to be a part of it. And that makes it tricky. That is the challenge. Yeah, it's like a little bit like playing 12 bar blues or something. It's like there's a very specific form you have to fill out, but somehow make a little bit different. Yeah, I know nothing about that. And actually, my dad would be extremely disappointed in me. <laughs> Sorry, dad, because I know you're listening. <laughs> so is there are there other kinds of recipes aside from the Thanksgiving turkey that's just like, oh, this again? I don't know. I Sometimes it just feels like, oh, another cheesy pasta dish or like, oh, another fried chicken. Like people are very predictable out there in the world in what we know they're gonna like and what they want and how it's gonna perform on Instagram. And oh, I love fried chicken, don't get me yeah. wrong. And I love pasta, but like I don't really wanna make another version of mac and cheese, even though I just did. I just had this image of of you looking at Instagram and being filled with dread as you realize the mac and cheese is popping up and that's what you're going to have to make. Totally. That's it, what it is. You're like, oh, because like Instagram is kind of your assignment editor and you can't stop it. Right. It does all of the deciding for us. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, nothing's that painful. Like I make it sound yeah. like, oh, it's so hard that I have to eat mac and cheese. And like you guys are listening out there being like, God, this girl. <laughs> but I mean... Try making it every single day over yeah. and over and over again. What This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds— 
You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. What are your audience interactions like? Do you get feedback from readers or people cooking up? Huge amount of feedback from readers. Again, Instagram, I get tons and tons and tons of DMs on a daily basis, most of which are people who have made one of my recipes, taken a photo of it and tagged me in it and posted it on their stories or on their feed. That's got to be a nice feeling, though. It's amazing. It's really, really gratifying. And it's something that I think, you know, 10 years ago, editors weren't able to experience that relationship with their readers because the magazine went out and then who knows who's cooking it and you never kind of hear from them again. But now you get to actually have an interaction with them. So I, as much as possible, try to respond to people. They'll often ask me questions like, I really want to make your ribolita recipe, but I don't have a Dutch oven. Will it work in a pasta pot? And I can field those questions like on the fly for them. And so that's a really amazing way to be able to engage. Do you ever get hecklers? Do those exist in food media? Are there people who are just like, uh, fuck your mac and cheese? Yeah, there's some nasty, nasty people out there on YouTube specifically, which I still don't understand why it's YouTube specific, but it is. And if you go and read the comments section of any of my videos, you'll see a lot of nasty stuff sprinkled in amongst a lot of nice things as well. Is it just like garden variety, internet misogyny kind of stuff? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just like take your pick. Yeah, that is YouTube's audience. I did get a DM the other day, though. And I was like, I can't tell if this is a compliment or not. I got a DM that w- that said, Molly, you're glowing in that Instagram story. Are you sure there's not a bun in the oven? And I was like, oh, get out of my life. Get out of my personal life. Are you sure? Like, thank you for the compliment about my skin. But also, are you freaking kidding me right now? If I did have a bun in the oven, like, I'm not sure you're the first person I'd choose to share that information with. There's like a weird lack of boundary. I think that's because we are so ourselves and our personalities are so us that people feel like, oh, I can just relate to this girl. I can just slip into her DMs and ask her about her pregnancy. I was about. I'm not pregnant. For the record. Yeah, just your dad Thank needs you. just dad. In, yeah, in case he is in fact listening. Um, what is the recipe you're proudest of? Wow. Do you have one? Oh my gosh. That is I can I don't oh I don't think I can answer that question because they I feel very close to all of my recipes. You know, I wouldn't say that every single one I make is one that I'm like, this is amazing, but like cooking is so personal and what results of a recipe that I've developed is so intrinsically tied to me and who I am as a cook that it's like it's like choosing between your children that said there's a few things that I really like a soup that just came out recently it's a lentil and kielbasa soup that just came out on basically it's not my favorite recipe I've ever made but it's more delicious than it should be given how simple it is and how there's like nine or ten ingredients in it then I think that really captures like the power of pairing the right ingredients together and building flavor properly. So I love that recipe for that reason. And then there's there's a pumpkin bread that people go kind of bananas for or pumpkins for. Um, it's I think it's just called pumpkin bread with salted maple butter, if you look for it on the site. Oh, um, and that's like a quick bread, olive oil-based cake that for some reason really took off and people got kind of obsessed with. It is delicious. Yeah. Is that like the mark of achievement is like when your recipe goes viral? Yeah. You know, you can tell pretty quickly if you're getting tagged in photos of something that people are into it. Is that something there's more pressure to do now that we're like in the era of like the stew? Yeah. For listeners who don't know, there was a Allison Roman recipe that, that went nuts online and it was referred to as the stew. Which happened right after the cookie. The cookie. Yes. Which Originally was the other was, viral recipe. Yes. The other viral Allison Roman. Yeah. yeah I think that Part of what we really consider when we develop recipes before we even start developing is how's it going to look and what are we going to call it? What are you going to call it? Yeah. What's the recipe title going to be? And that's sometimes where the idea actually starts. Uh, It's like headline writing almost. Yes. 
because we know that people are going to see the photo, see the name of the dish, and it's like they're either in or they're out at that moment. And so that's like your real moment to capture your reader. And so we spend a lot of time thinking about how can we name this dish in such a way that people think, I'm not not making that this weekend. Yeah. And that sometimes actually ends up informing the recipe. So for example, recently I had an idea for a recipe that was titled Greens, Eggs, and Ham for springtime, which is a play on green eggs and ham. And so it wasn't an idea. It was a name that then took the shape of a large format brunch dish that featured a lot of creamed greens, bacon, and eggs baked into it. And that became the dish. Is there ever a point where you have an idea for something, a dish you want to make, but you can't come up with the right name and you have to hold back on it? I don't think we've ever held a recipe because we couldn't think of a name. I mean, there's a lot of intelligent minds at Bon Appetit and we always come up with something, but we definitely play around with them a lot. There was one recently that Chris Morocco did and he, in his mind, he had decided this dish is going to be called Sambolognese, which was his mashup of Bolognese, the traditional Italian meat ragu, but making it a little bit more Asian by using sambal in there as one of the elements. And then we kind of got through the development process and we looked at the dish and we thought like, first of all, does that sound good? Do we like the ring of that? And is this actually a bolognese? Because now there's nothing else in it that really makes it a bolognese other than ground meat. So like, how is this relating back to that original idea? And so the name took a bunch of different shapes from then on out, and it actually ended up being called Sweet and Spicy Sambal Pork Noodles. That sounds good. Which also sounds great. So there's yeah. always a, there's always a solution. Yeah. So you've had to like work on the, the art of recipe naming. That's something yeah. you've had. It's to- something that our editor-in-chief, Adam, feels really strongly about, and he's right to feel that way because it is kind of the first interaction that anyone's having with a dish. So you got to sell it. Does your surrogate Italian grandma, did did she ever find out that you went into food? I don't know. <laughs> I feel no. kind of terrible about it. Oh, no. If you're out there, Graziella, it's me, Molly. <laughs> I should figure out how to get back in touch with her. I actually like, hold a lot of guilt inside me for never having followed up on that relationship. I think we stayed in touch for like six months after I left. And then I kind of moved on with my life. But the woman inspired your career and she doesn't I know. even know it. Oh, my God. I'm going to go home tonight and write to her. You, I, I have to. You have to. It's my destiny. Yeah. If one good thing comes to this episode. It'll yeah. Be it's that. that I'm going to rekindle my friendship with Graziella. I hope she's still alive. Stop. Sorry. Come on. <laughs> this is this has been really fun. Yeah. Th- thanks for coming Lovely on the show. Lovely talking to you. That's it for this week's episode of Working. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please leave us a review at Apple Podcasts. I know I ask you every week. I'm not going to stop asking. Uh, If you have questions or comments, thoughts, prayers, whatever, you just want to rant at someone on the internet, send me an email at working at slate.com. The show is produced by Jessamyn Molly. Special thank you to Justin D. Wright for the ad music. I'm Jordan Weissman. Join us next week. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.